0: And Dylan, with you, uh, with the grapevine and regular listeners will know how much we speak about the urban environment and its history on this program. And last week, we wanted to um, find out more about Jack Mundy. He's a union leader who some call the father of urban environmentalism. He died age 90 and he's probably better known in Sydney than Melbourne, but his influence has been felt across the country and around the world. He was the force behind the famous green bands, which saw unions stand together with residents Against unfettered development. His activism led to him being invited to the 1976 um, UN Conference on the Built Environment, which was the first of its kind. And to tell us more about Jack Mundy's life and legacy is Professor Verity Bergman. She's co author of a book entitled Green Bands, Red Union The Saving of a City. And it's really great to have you with us. Uh, Verity, welcome to Triple R.
2: Oh, thank you, and always a pleasure to talk about Jack Mundy. Yeah, and,
0: I mean, why is it that he was called the father of urban environmentalism?
2: Well, because, go back to the 1960s, the cities of Australia are being... Treated with contempt by developers concerned only with maximising profit, uh, the heritage and environmental legislation at that stage was zilch, and they were just tearing down lovely old buildings, uh, encroaching on green spaces, putting up these awful concrete and glass skyscrapers with no thought about the consequences for the for the humans and the in- environment. And the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation decided that that sort of irresponsible behaviour should stop. And they used the fact that they had power, power at the point of production, uh, to stop this madness. So they refused to work on projects that were either... um you know valuable buildings that the National Trust wanted to preserve they refused to knock them down if there was a, you know a green space that was worthy uh, you know that residents wanted to preserve they would not build on it um, I, I mean a really fantastic example is the rocks developers wanted to turn the rocks the perth place of European Australia with the oldest buildings in the country they wanted to tear them all down and make it an extension of the central business district it was only a green ban that prevented that desecration Of the rocks. And of course, it wasn't just that it was fantastic heritage, it was a working class residential area. And so the union very much emphasised the importance of class and its linkages with the environment, that workers in particular had even more interest than the rest of us in good urban planning because it was workers that lived in the least leafy spaces, who had the most you know, pollution, who the most road noise and you know, and so on. And so it really made sense for workers to become active on environmental issues and of course it was workers that had the power
1: to do so. Yeah, and even though that, that does absolutely make sense, I imagine there was a lot of work that went into kind of forming alliances across class lines and ideological lines and all that sort of thing between, you know, blue-collar workers, middle-class residents and, and conservationists and so on as well. How did that process work? And I guess what was um, Jack Mundy's role in, in helping to form those alliances um, towards, you know, the end of, of pre- preventing these developments?
2: Well, absolutely crucial. He referred to it as the winning alliance of environmentalists and resident activists on the one hand and enlightened workers uh, using their power on the other. And typically what would happen was that a resident action group would contact the union and say, please, can you stop this dreadful development? And the union would ask the residents to call a public meeting in the area so they could be confident that there really was widespread support for a ban. And then they would impose a ban and they would defend the ban on picket lines and the resident activists would support that um, you know, that defence of the industrial ban on um, on a particular area. And so, there, you know, there were pitch battles in the streets, you know, Victoria Street in Kings Cross, uh, Woolloomooloo, The Rocks. Um, you know, it was a huge social movement of workers withdrawing their labour and environmentalists and resident activists, conservationists uh, supporting the action and so enthusiastically.
0: And uh, Jack Mundy's background, I understand, was important to what came later in his involvement in the BLF and the Green Bands. I understand he grew up in the in the rainforests in around the Atherton yeah, Tablelands.
2: That's right, and he, and he really learned to love the natural landscape and hate the way it was um, being encroached upon by so-called development. And then he was enticed to Sydney in 1951 by Parramatta Rugby League Club. And he sort of suffered environmental shock, He noticed how, well, firstly, that his young son had respiratory problems from industrial pollution where they lived in Western Sydney. And he noticed how in the central business district, the sun was shining on fewer and fewer streets as the high-rise office blocks went up. And, you know, quite early in the 1960s, he was agitating around the problem of unfettered development and um, making comments about how the building industry has gone mad, etc. So it was something that was brewing for at least the second half of the 1960s within the union and particularly from his um, ideas. And so in 1970, um, the union develops this new concept of unionism um, and that involved the idea of the social responsibility of labour, that workers had a right to insist that their labour not be used in harmful ways. And they applied that through um, not just green bans, but they also stopped construction at Sydney University to safeguard a women's studies course at Macquarie University to ensure reinstatement of a gay activists and in Redfern where a developer wanted to um, basically evict um, you know, thousands of Aboriginal residents and that successful resistance to that developer is really the first successful Aboriginal land rights claim because it led to the Redfern Aboriginal Community Housing Scheme. But obviously the most spectacular application of the social responsibility was the Green Bands movement.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you, I understand, remained close to to Jack Mundy, you know, throughout his his later life as well. What's, I guess, your sense or what would be his sense of the nature of that social responsibility of labour and the way that's sort of been applied through the union movement, um, sort of in the aftermath of his, you know, very direct involvement um, with the New South Wales Building Laborers Federation?
2: Well, his major concern, his work um, after the Green Bans movement was to work on building links between green activists and working class activists. He uh, was convener of an organisation called Environmentalists for Full Employment, uh, which was focused on exploding the myth, as he called it, and it is a myth, that environmental protection costs jobs. That even just repairing the damage already done to the planet will require millions of workers. Mm. And so he talked about the importance of green and uh, labour movement activists coming together to talk about the sort of jobs that would uh, build a a sustainable future. And he would always emphasise that resource extraction like coal mining actually employed very, very few people for the amount of capital invested in it and that you could employ many, many more people and protect the planet if you built uh, wind turbines or uh, solar arrays and so on and, um, you know, did better recycling and so on. So he was, uh, you know, very, very focused on, on, yeah, on job creation schemes that were developed by Greens and labour movement activists working together.
0: Uh, It's almost ten o'clock, and we're speaking with um, Professor Verity Bergman about Jack Mundy, uh, the union leader. uh, The um, some have called the father of urban environmentalism, and was really the force behind the Green Bands. And uh, I mean, that's really fascinating. And uh, I suppose many would would uh, hear those kind of calls being made now by others around employment, um, particularly as we recover the economy and and so forth, and um, making that a kind of more sustainable. uh, economy going forward. But I wonder, um, Verity, I mean, the success of the green bans uh, was massive and I understand there was over 50 of them put in place and $5 billion in building activity held up. And I imagine there was a different point of view around uh, uh, Jack Mundy and, and the BLF and, and the kind of broader green band movement um, from the development side.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> you know, the newspapers would regularly call for Jack Mundy and the other BLF leadership to be jailed but within a few years he was um, being you know, awarded honorary doctorates for his eminent and vital service to society he was given an AO um, in 2002 he was voted one of Australia's national living treasurers because he was right and um, and people could see further down the track that he was right. And it wasn't just that the bans prevented a lot of horrible things happening. It changed the culture of town planning. And it forced governments to improve environmental and heritage legislation. So that green bans wouldn't have to happen again in the future because governments hated the green bands because it actually said very, very visibly, look, um, workers have the power to do this uh, because governments have failed to prevent developers from
1: wrecking the place. And what's your sense, Verity, of the kind of international significance of, of Jack Mundy and the Green Bands? I understand that, um, you know, they're held in quite high regard by particular kind of, um, you know, movements and organisations that have been set, set up to follow a similar ethos to what he um, helped to kind of institutionalise here in Australia. Uh,
2: yes, uh, it You know, it was the first such action in the world and the International Encyclopedia of Environmental Politics and all those sorts of reference works, you know, acknowledge that. And they also point out that, in fact, this is how the word green got into the political lexicon of the world, that Petra Kelly visited Sydney during the green bans. She was so impressed with them that when she went back to Germany, she decided to call the German Environmental Party that was forming the Greens. Mm. And therefore the word spread globally but she got the name green from the green bans movement Uh, jack coined the term green ban in 1973 it was about you know it was a couple of years after the first ban um and he said that it was to indicate its environmental aspect but also because it had a more positive connotation than the traditional union term of black ban when they you know refused to work on a particular site and withdraw labour. So, it, you know, it was a clever coining. Um, and so the Greens, the Australian Greens, that's how they got their name, and Jack actually joined the Australian Greens in 2003...
0: And I understand um, there's another colour associated with Jack Mundy, and that's red. So we've got um, black yes. bands there, green bands, and I um, mean, um, your book title, uh, Verity, is Green Bands, Red Union. So, I mean, how strong was his um, support of, of communism, for instance?
2: Well, he joined the Communist Party in, in the mid 50s because he judged communists to be the best. Uh, industrial militants, the most persistent fighters for improved wages and conditions, uh, who had ideas about a more equitable distribution of wealth in society. He liked those egalitarian ideas, but he absolutely hated the sort of sectarian um, battles. He said he did not worship at the altar of either Peking or Moscow. He was very, very independent. His ideas were homegrown. They weren't a learned response from another country. He um, hated the idea that, um, you know, a revolutionary party could lead the way to a better society. He said it's union struggles that matter most. And he was as critical of the Eastern Bloc's environmental record as he was of the capitalist West. So he said, you know, that, they, they have, um, that, you know, that both forms of society were addicted to growth mania and were equally bad for the environment. So he was a very, a very very independent-minded communist, but he remained a, a, a loyal member of the Communist Party until it disbanded in
0: 1989. So what do you think, um, with regards to your views on, on Jack Mundy, Verity, about his, his legacy? I mean, he's been really lauded in um, the press in the last week, um, people really highlighting this history and his involvement, and I suppose this very... Active or activist approach to, to heritage and also environmental protection. Do you think it was the heritage or the environmental side that um, he's been most, most influential with?
2: Well, I think it was important the way he brought them together because mostly up until his movement, um, environmentalism was seen as, as conservation of nature and he was very, very articulate about the importance of urban um, environmental activism. So he, you know, he said you know most people live in cities, um, urban environmental protection is so important. Nature is too and you know some of the green bands in Sydney were about protecting green spaces, Cle- Kelly's Bush, the most famous example, Centennial Park would have become a concrete stadium um, if he, you know, if the green band hadn't stopped it. So There were green spaces protected, but predominantly it was about um, protecting the urban, uh, the built environment. And that was very important the way he emphasised that as well as the importance of nature.
0: Thanks so much for being with us on Triple R. We're out of time, but um, I mean, people can look up your book uh, and that looks at Green Bands and Duck Mundy Green Bands, Red Union, The Saving of a City. And uh, Verity, it's been great to have you on Triple R today.
2: Thank you very much. You're very welcome.
0: And Professor Verity Bergman there, um, really giving us an insight into Jack Mundy. Many people know a lot about him, some people not so much. uh, And uh, there's been much written about him, uh, Green Bands, and his life in the past week following his death at age 90.
3: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform.
0: Great to have you with us. However, you're listening to Three Triple R this morning and On our doorstep in West Papua is an independence struggle that many believe will become bloodier. Uh, Like Timor-Leste, which successfully attained independence from Indonesia uh, after a quarter of a century of resistance, the Melanesian people of West Papua have been fighting occupation for decades. Uh, The Dutch left the country in the early 60s only to be replaced by Indonesia that still administers it as uh, its most easterly province called Irian Jaya. Uh, As our next guest writes in his book on this ongoing conflict, West Papua had gone from a colonial backwater preparing for independence in the 1950s to a war zone and then to an occupied country in the space of 3 years. John Martinkus is an author, journalist and foreign correspondent. He's reported from war zones for much of his career including in East Timor, Aceh and in West Papua and his book being released today is titled The Road Uprising in West Papua and it's great to have you on Triple R. John, um, welcome and congrats on the book and um, it's a very readable book as well and it fills so many gaps um, in my knowledge about the history of what's happening over there, so it's great to have you.
4: Oh, thank you. Hey.
0: Um, yeah, and so, I mean, maybe we can do a bit of setup um, for people that haven't read it yet because it only comes out today. Um, maybe you know, give us that sort of high-level view and intro into West Papua, where it is, um, how it's come to have a resistant movement for so long.
4: Yeah, look, um, West Papua is the western half of the whole New Guinea island. So, um, say for example, when, you, when you're when you watching the ABC and you see a weather map in northern Australia, um, it's, it's basically um, you, you might get the temperature from Minesby or something like that. Um, but you know, the rest of the island is a blank. And, um, that is that. That's most popular, and um, the reason why we don't get the temperatures for um, that half the island is because it's basically, um, you know, it's banned for uh, any foreigners to go there. Really, um, so it's very, um, it's very remote. Um, even though it's quite close to Australia, um, you, know, you know, at some points only a couple hundred k's from. Um, you know, the t- across the Torres Strait to Queensland. Um, it's, it's you know, very, very close to Australia. But um, start getting there is really hard because the Indonesians have just locked the place down for so long. Um, and the reason for that is they're fighting a war there and they don't want anybody to know
0: and, you, I mean, you've travelled there, and I, I suppose before we kind of get into the detail of your book, you've called it The Road, and uh, and I learned from you, it, you know, that refers to the Sakano-era vision of, a, of an Indonesian kind of main highway that runs from Sabang um, in northern Aceh right through to Merauki in West Papua. Can you sort of explain why that's so significant, that idea of kind of end-to-end road um, across Indonesia?
4: Yeah, look, that's a really historical thing. Um, the uh, founding fathers, I suppose, of Indonesia, uh, the, the leader, Sukarno, um, who led the fight against the Dutch after World War Two, he, um, he kept... He had this, like, rallying cry, which was, um, you know, oh, from Sabanc to Muraki, we're going to back-back the country. And... um and um you know that it's that, really stuck in the Indonesian imagination um all these years, and now the way it's manifested itself is you know they, they want to build this road that's called the Papua Highway that goes all the way through Papua down to Meraki and um, as a consequence, it's gone through all these areas that so previously they were really. Seen Indonesian occupational. Um, never really seen the Indonesians really, and um, that has that has caused um, basically a kickstart in the war against the Indonesians because they're trying to push areas they've never been to before.
1: Yeah, and I mean, your book covers, um, you know, a a kind of wide-ranging timeline in West Papua's history, but also your experience in, um, I guess, in in many years ago reporting from the region, but also trying to report without visiting there, because as you say, it's it's very difficult for people to gain access to West Papua. And I mean, your article in the Saturday paper in December 2018 um, detailed, uh, you know, alleged chemical weapons attacks against West Papuans in uh, Nduga um, following the killing of some Indonesian road Workers, so that's kind of sort of tied to this um, whole effort to build the road, uh, you know, throughout Indonesia and and, and West Papua, as you mentioned, as, as tying very much into the current uh, conflict and tensions there. Tell us about, I guess, that incident in 2018 and, and what we know about what happened there.
4: Yeah, look, that was um, that was a terrible story, actually. Um, what happened basically was um, the Indonesians um, they were. Building the Road, and um, they're in a very remote village in, in Duga. And, um, and this is a place which, you know, there really ever been very many Indonesians there. Um, December 1 comes, and, and that is the celebration of the day when the Papians were allowed to raise their flag for the first time in 1961. Um, by the Dutch, because they're preparing them for independence. So um, every December 1 across West Papua, um, you have these flag raisings, and they've always been tremendously... Um, ..tremendously controversial in a way because um, the Indonesians have panned the raising of the flag and you know, any individual can get anywhere up to like five years in jail for raising the flag, or sometimes they get shot, or sometimes you know a riot erupts or something like that when they raise the flag. And in this remote place pipe, up in the Highlands, they always raise their flag every first of December. You know, it's just something that did. And but this time there were Indonesians there, they never had been before. And they local people were raising the flag and um Indonesians saw it. Um, there was you know, road workers team of them. Um, and they took a few pictures and the um, basically the locals freaked out and went, No, oh, you can't take pictures of us you know, might end up in jail, so They ran off, and um, because it's such a strong pro-independence area, um, the son of one of the local leaders, who was a a local leader himself, um, you know, basically, and um, rounded up his his men, and you know, grabbed his weapons, and um, and went down to the hard workers' camp, and um, knocked him away and killed him. And um, and that brought this incredible backlash against the local population that's still going on to this day.
1: Yeah, with estimates of, of around 45,000 people displaced by that sort of particular incident and, and the response from Indonesia as well. And, and what's sort of really interesting in your book is the response um, to your article in the Saturday paper because, I mean, one of the, the difficulties, I guess, in us knowing exactly about what's going on is the limited access for, um, for journalists, uh, you know, to, to gain access to that particular part of the world. Um, and that, Article you wrote in 2018 attracted a, a really um, quite sort of severe response from the former Indonesian general Wiranto, who flatly denied that any of that had actually happened. And I actually noticed in um, the recent ABC's foreign correspondent episode that um, that looked at the West Papua kind of struggle for for independence and the resistance movement there that your article was mentioned in a statement from the Indonesian government once again. So, I mean, how can we sort of I guess understand the the denial that these sorts of things are happening and the attempts to limit foreign journalists from, from entering that particular region? Uh,
4: yeah, it's kind of... Um, you know It's very, um, it's very intense, actually. Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh, look, the Indonesian government went as far as, as, far as like, the following year um, when they had some riots over there. Um, they... They shut down the phone system. They shut down the internet. They shut down banking and everything. Um, you know, to to basically make sure that no information from that area is going to help um, They—it's not just journalists either. It's it's a at, um, I know humanitarian workers are all out there. No UN people are all out there. Um,
1: the yeah. UN. We know Veronica Coman, for example, the human rights advocate, has been um, yeah, yeah has, has been targeted by the government as well.
4: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah, she's Indonesian, mm. um, but because she was defending the rights of West Papuans, um, she was basically chased out of the country. She's in Australia now, and I mean, it's it's, it's very widespread, and it's quite it's quite virulent, actually. My um, like, by myself, even since I've just gone along with a publicist book, um, you know, I've been getting hammered on Twitter and Facebook by Indonesian um, bots, really. Um, just going, you know, oh, you're lying, you're doing this, you're doing that. And, um, yeah, it's very, very prevalent. They, they're very, very, very sensitive to criticism. And they think that uh, if they can just keep everybody away from the conflict, um, that it will be fine and they will be able to do what they want.
0: How does that compare and, to um, what happened in East Timor, Timor-Leste, John, because you also reported from there, I should remind listeners we're speaking with John, Martinka's journalist and author and his book is called The Road Uprising in West Papua. Um, you've also reported from Aceh in Indonesia. Um, yeah. Is, so, is this typical what you're experiencing around West Papua with the pressure from from Indonesian government and and bots, as you say, uh, or is or is it more extreme when it comes to West West Papua?
4: Yeah, it's like a, it's almost like an evolutionary thing. I mean, like in Timor, they didn't really have a grasp on. I started going to Timor in the mid '90s, and back then they um, tried to so say that there was no problem in Timor. Um, and they said, oh, you can visit if you're a tourist, you know. And so I said I was a tourist, and, you know, I went, went in there and then I you know, found out there was a great big war going on. And, um, and you know, they, they'd sort of they'd harass you, they'd, they'd threaten you, they'd uh, follow you around, they'd do everything they could to try and make you leave, basically. <laughs> and... um yeah, but um, they didn't—they didn't keep people out. And I think the way they the Indonesians look at it is that they made a great mistake there, in that they didn't keep the foreigners out, and they blame the foreigners for the fact that Timor became independent. And and I've heard that a thousand times from many different Indonesians. And then in Archer, it got worse. Um, they did eventually kick all the foreigners out in 2003. And, um, yeah, and, and you know, a good friend of mine, Billy Nesson, he, he got stuck up in the mountains with the guerrillas, And, um, yeah, he was an American guy. And the State Department had to end up getting him out. And he spent time in the Indonesian show before they let him go. Uh, you know, he was one of the few left. And, yeah, you know, they basically kicked everybody out in 2003. They're not forced to finish that because of the tsunami in 2004. Now in West Papua, um, we've got this situation where um, the military's taken a really hard line and they've gone, right, OK, look, let's get rid of all journalists. Let's not have any journalists. Let's not have any UN people. Let's not have any aid people. You know, they're, they're all trouble. Let's just get rid of them. And um, and that's why, in this vacuum, incidents like the um, bombing of the province with chemical weapons are allowed to happen. Because I think they think can, they can do it without anybody saying.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, on the one hand, we can sort of understand the relative lack of knowledge and, and understanding here in Australia of West Popular, you know, a place that's geographically very, very close to the Australian. Mainland, um, given that sort of restriction on access and, and journalists um, reporting on, on particular regions and and that kind of thing. But there's also an element to it um, that, you know, Australian journalists haven't, editors I should say, haven't always been that interested in what's happening in that part of the world. I mean, you write in your book about reporting on the killing of a West Papuan leader in the early 2000s and, you know, thinking you had a scoop that it sort of had been sanctioned by the Indonesian government, but that wasn't really picked up very much at all in the press. And, and you also refer to kind of a almost blase, dismissive, and um, quite racist attitude from one Australian editor about the violence you were reporting on in, in that part of the world as well. So, to what extent are Australian is the Australian media, I should say, kind of open to reporting on West Papua and, and the struggle for independence? Given it is you know so close to Australia and has played quite a quite a prominent role really in Australia's history, if we think about PNG, you know, being a former colony of Australia and so on.
4: Uh, that's a really good point. Um, look, it's an issue that like East Timor too, like when I started reporting on Timor in the nineties it was the same. Um, at the time both major parties in Australia, the ALP and the they both basically agreed that um, you know Timor was part of Indonesia, um, as most you know, as i don't now that West Papi is part of Indonesia, and it's because of that sort of compliance you know, that you know, it is seen as a non-issue and so it really takes you know, to, to go up there and report it and actually get a run um, is quite hard because it really takes some sort of major incident like the you know, killing of the road workers and the subsequent crackdown to actually, um, you know, break through that. Um, and and what, what goes under the radar is just the day-to-day violence that goes on. Um, you know, because there's, there's a lot of really casual violence that goes on in terms of, like, you know, people get, you know, a couple arrested here or a few beaten there or, um, you know, a couple of... Um, you know, happens detained or whatever. Um and that that's the kind of thing that that really is the story in a way, it's like the way that the people have to live up there under under an Indonesian law.
0: It's really interesting that that idea of even using the term the the name West Papua, and i I've thought about this even when introducing you, John, that it is called Irian Jaya um, as well by the and, and Australia, as you say, is uh, and many countries around the world recognise that that is a province of Indonesia. Um, is it? And I, I suppose we see the same conflict um, playing out globally around Taiwan and, and China, and, and who recognises what as a country and that sort of thing. Uh, is that also makes it? Does that also make it difficult to, to talk about West Papua and the resistance movement when there are different names? And if you use one name versus the other, you're playing into that straight away.
4: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, because and because this has been going since 1961. Um, you know, it's quite been going for a long time. It's like 59 years. You know, and. You know, in many ways, the Indonesians very firmly see it as a done deal. They're they're not going to go back on it. They're not going to reconsider a referendum. They're not going to take it back to the UN. Basically, any sort of move towards independence for the people there um, comes up against a brick wall, more or less. It's like for Indonesia, it's not negotiable. And the ground, that's a totally different case. Um, you know, the people there still want independence and are still fighting for independence.
1: Could you... And, uh, sorry to jump in, John. Could you imagine Australia taking a more active role with, um, you know, ever supporting uh, independence for West Papua, given, I guess, you know, it took Australia quite a long time to come around to supporting independence in Timor-Leste. I mean, is that an eventuality that you could see happening?
4: Look, um, yeah, because I was was in East Timor for the whole time during the lead-up to independence, and and I watched the Australian government pivot between um, supporting Indonesia and then all of a sudden um, not supporting independence, but uh, at least, um, you know, being open to the possibility of it. And um, and then, of course, once all the violence happened, um, then moving in with the troops. Uh, to calm the situation down, which they only did because the Americans told them they had to. But, um, you know, and then in the next few years afterwards, I was up in West Papua, and um, and I could see it. I could, I could see um, definitely the the desire of the people up there was for independence. And they and they'd say to you over and over again. You know, many many leaders would say to you. Um, that they wanted, you know, if Team Alistair had a chance to be independent, why, why don't we, you know, why doesn't Australia help us? And, um, yeah, it led to a few sort of, you know, oh, almost confrontations in a way with leaders when i interview them and they'd go, oh, you're from Australia, you know, what's Australia doing? With, you know, you betrayed mm-hmm. us. Yeah. And, um, yeah, sometimes it was quite funny, really, because, um, yeah... I mean, this ties back to the, the way the media works, too. But you know, I remember I was travelling with an English journalist and he was being quite well-received and I was being quite hostilely received. Um, this is where I was from. And um, whereas my friend, who was Scottish, he, he was um, I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys are great, you know. Um, yeah, but Australians, no, we hate Australians, yeah. So it was very... Yeah, but I could see Australia playing a role, but I think on a more diplomatic level um, simply by encouraging Indonesia to maybe ease some of the restrictions on the province, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and I mean, given your the challenges of, of reporting on this region, I mean, how are you staying informed and, and, and keeping a watch on what's happening there?
4: Yeah, look, that's been quite hard actually. Because um, when I have the idea that by this point, um, you, know, uh, was, um, you know, I basically started hoovering up every bit of information I could get. And most of that comes from Indonesian sources, actually. A lot of it's from military communiques, from um, official statements, uh, that kind of thing that's generally published through the state news agency, Antara. Um, and it's a, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle with Putting the pieces together of working out what's going on. Um, also, the the OPM, the independence movement, they put out statements. Um, they they send information. Um, often it's a lot later than the Indonesians. Um, you know, and often it's directly contradicting what the Indonesians say. Um, and there's local people on the ground as well um, who you know pretty much can't name, but. They they also put information out because, you know, these days people are on social media and they are on the net and they, they can get things like pictures out and that kind of thing.
0: Well, thank you for your book, John. It's been really great speaking with you about it. We're completely out of time. Um, But, uh, yeah, commend people to read it. It's called The Road Uprising in West Papua. It's out today via Black Ink. And if you want to learn more about what's happening in West Papua, uh, John is a um, a very knowledgeable guide and it's a very readable book. So um, all the best with it and hopefully releasing it into a pandemic environment. doesn't relegate it to the the back pages, uh, John, because... um, Um, you've tried for many years to to keep our eyes on that area. So, yeah, all the best with it. Yeah, thank you. Um, John Martinkis, there, journalist and author and uh, a very um, uh, courageous foreign correspondent. He's reported from all different kinds of war zones, including um, various different islands and parts of Indonesia.
2: Triple ah.
0: It's difficult times in the media business right now. There's more news than ever, but due to already sparse advertising revenues dropping off a cliff... Due to the pandemic, uh, newsrooms in regional areas in particular have closed or have been suspending their operations. And this is just in recent months. The newspaper model has already faced its challenges for many years with mergers and staff and budget cuts, a theme of the modern newspaper. And so when we wanted to speak um, with award-winning Guardian journalist Adam Morton, um, we were speaking to him with two hats, uh, one as environment editor with The Guardian Australia uh, and The other as one of the journalists behind a local newspaper called Tasmanian Inquirer. And if you stick Tasmanian Inquirer into your search engine, you'll find a new site designed to fill the gap in local news and analysis in Tassie. And it's really great to have you on. Triple R, Adam, how are you going?
3: I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Yeah. And um, and maybe give us a bit of a potted history of the Tasmanian Inquirer. Why and who decided to start a new media outlet in these um, pandemic times?
3: Uh, well, I mean, it was dreamed up long before pandemic times. It's kind of uh, that, came, like so much in our lives that just collided with when we were about to launch. But um, I, um, Tassie born and bred, I lived in Melbourne for a long time and moved back about four years ago. And um, along with some other people, uh, I mean, it's, it's fairly clear when you uh, live in regional areas that the massive cuts that we've seen in media, news media across the board, it's particularly hard in smaller regions, smaller markets, because there just isn't that many players, the big news outlets to start with, to um, to really do what is necessary. And so we've seen in Tassie, and I've watched it happen in the time I've been back here, that the local paper in Hobart, the Mercury has had massive cuts, um, as they have been across the board at News Corp. Uh, The papers up north in Launceston and Burnie, uh, which were owned by Fairfax and now owned by Australian Community Media, have had perhaps even worse cuts and are now largely merged entities. And the local ABC news operation has also had cuts as the ABC's budget's been constrained. So we have some really, really, a handful of really seasoned reporters doing great work, working incredibly hard, and then a whole bunch of... Uh, excellent young reporters um, going flat out to do what they can, but there are huge gaps areas that just aren't covered. And so much of what is covered is just day-to-day stuff and there's less room for them to do in-depth reporting. So um, with Bob Burton, who's a, another um, a Tassie-based, experienced journo, we started talking more than two years ago about trying to start a, a project that would try to fill some of those gaps. And it took a long time to get off the ground because we other commitments, uh, but we finally launched in March with a handful of stories, and, and our goal is to try to cover unreported and underreported areas, um, and we've so far had about 10 stories that we've put up and we just do them as we can uh, around other commitments with hope that we can develop some community support and build a bit over time.
1: Yeah, it's a really noble effort, Adam, particularly given the kind of, um, you know, newsroom shrinking in recent times and the the closure of, of, you know, quite a few newspapers, particularly in regional areas amid the pandemic and then the news last week, of course, with, um, you know, BuzzFeed News winding up its operations in Australia as well. What types of stories do you, you know, do you think You'll be covering as part of the Tasmanian inquiry because you mentioned they're sort of not necessarily the typical daily news style. What will you be looking to and, and who will be telling those stories?
4: Well, we're not,
3: I guess, what we're not doing is here's what a politician said today, or mm. here's what happened in court today, or there was a car accident. What we're trying to do is to dig into issues that we think are important to how our society works. Um, the, the broad three areas that we um, set out on our, our um, website are um, uh, politics. Society and environment. Society, of course, being the catch-all, it's everything that doesn't fit into politics and environment, really. <laughs> but, um, but so far, the sort of stories we've looked at are uh, um, the plight of threatened species in Tasmania. There's a big issue about gaming policy in Tasmania. It was a big issue at the state election two years ago, and we've done a handful of pieces on that already. That's become a, an issue that's gone on the back burner with COVID-19, but there'll be legislation later this year. The government says that we'll... Um, Change the way that gambling operates in the state, and it's, a, we think, a huge issue, and we're spending quite a bit of time looking at that. Uh, we've had issues, uh, stories around um, support for MPs from federal group, which is kind of a game, gaming-linked story as well, because that's the big gaming company in the state. And, uh, and perhaps, I think, our most noteworthy story... So far, uh, was by Carl Matheson, who's a London-based Tassie Juno who was taught, caught back here when COVID hit, He was back visiting family, about it's kind of it went inside what happened when Tassie Parliament agreed to shut down with all parties supporting it when COVID kicked in and some of the serious misgivings around that by some of the politicians and by other uh, players in public life. And I don't want to claim all the credit, but two days after that story was published... Uh, the Premier was talking about, he's he's aware of chatter that there was concern about this and Parliament would be returning uh, Mm -hmm. now. Not entirely down to us, but that's the sort of issue we want to raise. And that wasn't really something that was on the public agenda beyond some interest groups raising it uh, independently at that point.
0: I reckon you can claim it. Um, I, 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 People claim a lot less. <laughs> That's right. Um, the, the idea of quality, not quantity, I think, is a really interesting one. And I was trying to think, you know, are, do we have models like yours already in the marketplace? And the, and the closest that came to mind was maybe the Saturday paper, which has a similar type approach to having kind of more in-depth reporting um but, and I mean, that's more, it's online, but it's also print. I mean, what's the vision for it? Are you likely to go print or is it very much an online uh, a publication into the future, you think, Adam?
3: No, it's very, definitely will be digital. No plans for print. I mean, our at the moment, it's a labour of luck. We're volunteering our time because we think it's important and, and, and we enjoy doing it, to be honest. But there's obviously only so much you can give. Um, and we... Uh, hoping that over time we will be able to develop some support. I guess it's a similar model in terms of funding to what The Guardian does in a way, which is if you love what we what we do and you want to see more of it, then and you're in a position where you can, and not everyone can, um, contribute. We will love for you to donate, whether it's one off or on an ongoing basis, and we will put that money and tell you how we're spending that money on journalism, and we'll apply for grants. And um, we, but we don't, we don't have a paywall. Uh, we may have some advertising on email lists and things, but we don't on our website. So it is more a community model. We want to build a sense of community ownership around it. And um, and over time, if we have, we don't expect that we're going to be ever a you know a full-time functioning newsroom. But if we can build a certain level of support and some people want to get behind it, then hopefully we'll be able to pay some contributors who might be able to begin to some areas that. Um, that we're less familiar with, because obviously there's only a couple of us doing it and we're not across everything that's happening in Tasmanian society. But, yeah, that's the, that's the rough idea, basically. And now we've been really overwhelmed with the sport we've had so far, far more than we would have imagined. Um, that's very early days.
1: Yeah, and that that provides, I mean, you mentioned the Guardian's funding model there. That provides a good opportunity to pivot to um, the other hat you wear, which is the environment editor with Guardian Australia. I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Adam Morton. Um, And so you are reporting as part of a a new series called Green Recovery, which is all um, around, I guess, uh, the opportunities for for a recovery along sort of um, green sustainability lines following the pandemic. I mean, how do you see the way that governments around the world and and business as well, is shifting in the current times and and looking to a possible way out of it that I guess, um, you know, represents a bit of a deviation from business as usual?
3: Well, I mean, I think that there's a real push happening globally for a reappraisal as we come out of COVID-19. And obviously the first thing we should say is that this is first and foremost a health crisis and has to be treated that way initially, and there's different places in the world are at different stages in terms of thinking about what happens on the other side um, and what the, even when the other, other side starts. But there is going to be... You know, the economic impact is going to be obviously huge and ongoing, and um, governments, whether it's through direct stimulus or policies that encourage um, new investment, uh, new jobs, are going to have to really kick Economies And different governments are thinking about it in different ways, but there is now a real push globally, not everywhere, but in many places for it to be a green recovery or a sustainable recovery. Um, and there are different visions of what that might look like, but we are seeing major international institutions like the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, International Energy Agency, um, the UN Secretary General are all talking some of them in quite detail, quite a bit of detail about what this might look like. And we're seeing a number of governments um, who are headed down this path internationally, um, particularly in Europe, where there's a lot of discussion around a Green New Deal, both across the board, and there are specific um, plans within countries, but also countries like Canada, South Korea, as you wouldn't expect like Pakistan, which is employing out-of-work um unemployed people now to plant they're saying, up to a billion trees, which in its way is a green recovery program with a real environmental benefit. Um, I'm kind of drifting away from your question a bit here, but what, what the general push of it is to skip away from what happened after the global financial crisis a bit more than a decade ago when um, there was a dip in emissions and then there was the biggest spike in history in one year as economies recovered and we just went mm. back to what we were doing before. And there's a sense that if we're going after this moment, it's not going to be the money there was before. But there is a window here in which there's an opportunity for there to be stimulus spending and a bit of a reset um, and a rethink. And if we don't embrace this moment now, it's for the countries to live up to what they've said they will under the Paris Agreement. It's not clear when that next opportunity will come because clearly budgets are going to be constrained going forward. And we're increasingly seeing some really interesting work and discussion around what could be done in Australia, though it hasn't necessarily penetrated all media and all Canberra discussion at this point.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, there were, there, there was a sense too after the devastating summer fires, Adam, that there was a window there too where people, um, you know, individuals as well as uh, the Business Council and, and so forth were having a look at what that might mean for Australia's action towards, you know, well, we've signed the Paris Agreement, so uh, action on emissions. And, I mean, how important uh, is your reporting showing groups like the Australian Industry Group and the Business Council of Australia and others to uh, having a look at the the so-called green options in in the economic recovery? Uh, It's
3: a good question. I mean, there are different views within the business community and different emphases, though they have... All those major groups have said they support uh, net zero greenhouse gas emissions, which effectively means um, zero emissions. A- and they don't all tie it to mid-century, but they say that is the goal of the Paris Agreement um, at some point in this century. Um, and it's notable that they've all made that push to the federal government, who at this stage does not have a goal of net zero emissions. And it might sound kind of esoteric what a net, net zero emissions goal means. I mean, it's, we're a long way from that. Obviously, a mid-century is still... Um, some time away, but why it's considered really important is that once you have that goal, then business will factor in the fact that that's where we're ultimately heading and start putting that into their planning. I'll assume that it makes them reconsider whether investments that are going to last decades that include fossil fuel emissions really are going to have a life or whether policy is going to follow to deliver on that. So one of the really interesting calls that we've seen so far is from the Australian Industry Group, which... um, Represents uh, loosely sort of 60,000 businesses which um, last week, uh, sorry the week before now um, said that two big challenges of our time are recovery from COVID-19 and the climate crisis or climate change and they need to be uh, dealt with at the same time. Um, It's impossible to say how much impact that is having politically but um, it's not nothing. It's a really significant group in Australian public life and If they're out there calling for tax cuts, then that would be on the front page of many newspapers, which when they call for action on climate change, it's not necessarily, but it's still being noticed and there is lobbying underway on that. Um, State and federal governments, and I think it's probably fair to say some governments are listening more than others.
1: Yeah, and it, it's interesting to be looking at this, I guess, at a time as well where, um, you know, Australia is going to be looking um, surely at opportunities to grow the econ- economy on the other side of the kind of global pandemic. Um, we've had sort of, you know, relatively low economic growth for some years now. And in order to recover some of that spending on, you know, things like JobKeeper and, and um, the extra Job Seeker payments and associated uh, measures that have been taken by the government, then, you know, groups such as Beyond Zero Emissions and, and Ross Garneau would suggest that the green economy is an area that's very much ripe for for more growth. Is that something that, that you're getting from some of your reporting on this issue?
3: Yeah, so uh, we ran a piece last week that was kind of an introductory piece to this series we're doing, um, the green recovery, uh, which goes through some of the work that's already out there um, and, and some of the work that's coming. Um, there are a lot of... Um, Organisations, um, independent organisations, work at universities, work in interest groups who are digging deep into what a green recovery might look like, where there would be employment opportunities at a time in which we need them, where there may be opportunities to actually save um, that are cheaper in the long run. Um, and Climate Works we're um, which Carly has a link to, is, is done one of the, the, the very good early pieces of work here. We, are in the coming uh, weeks, are going to be trying to dig deep into a lot of this um, work because we think that um, there's a lot of serious thinking that's happening out there, and it deserves serious attention. Um, and we're seeing... Uh, I've seen in some other media today that some other media is starting to look at these things too in a bit more depth, which is great, because we would hope that that forms part of the national conversation about where we go from here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and I wonder if we can pull together your two interests there, at the Tasmanian Inquirer and also Guardian Australia, and have a look um, at what Tassie's um, put forward, and that's this um, real focus on, on renewables, Adam. I mean, is that something that is capturing imaginations uh, in your island state? Uh,
3: yeah, I think so, to, to some extent. I mean, Tasmania is unique in Australia in that it is nearly 100% renewable energy, runs on nearly 100% renewable energy already, because um, most of its uh, energy comes from hydropower, uh, and there's no coal industry of note here. Uh, But Tassie is the the, uh, new Premier, Peter Gutwin, new Liberal Premier, set a target of 200% uh, renewable energy by 2040, which means basically we double we produce and the other 100% would be either used to our new clean industries for the state and for export and seeing that as a real economic opportunity for the state to grow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's weird. that The culture wars on uh, climate change don't really exist in Cassie to the same extent because there is no fossil fuel industry of note to be fighting against it. Uh, Everyone sees it as a positive. How we do it, how we get there, is contested. Um, But generally, it's just seen as an overwhelmingly positive um, thing. And um, they put out a draft action plan last week, the government, which, you know, it's early days. But um, I think, you know, there's a cross... Um, party support and across community support, the question is just whether how fast and and whether we could go even faster, some people would
2: say.
0: Yeah, and so the Green Recovery is a series you're running in The Guardian. I mean, is this likely then to run for some time? Um, You think these conversations will continue to be had, Adam?
3: Yeah, so we're looking to do, um, I can't say too much about all the different bits we're doing, but we are, there's a lot of really interesting things happening across the country, some of it really practical as well. Um, and we're hoping to look at this from a range of different angles, and it's going to be um, running for, yeah, some time into the future. We see that as um, clearly one of the big stories of the uh, weeks and months ahead. So um, uh, hopefully our readers will agree.
0: Well, no doubt you'll have the the hits and clicks to be able to report back that (laughs) to us. Um,
3: (laughs) um, I mean, the feedback is is generally pretty positive uh, (laughs) from our readership. But we're obviously, you know, I mean, part of the goal is also... Um, we want to reach as many people with this as we can so uh, you know shameless plug get on the site and have a look
0: yeah well well, we've done it Um, uh, great to have you on triple r and all the best in particular with the tasmanian inquirer and if um, people have uh, an interest in um, tassie reporting um, you can stick that into your search engine and it it comes up and you'll be able to have a look at the the early reporting as part of that project and um, we look forward to seeing how it evolves adam
1: Great, thanks for having me, guys.
0: Thanks. Adam Mortem, um, he's with the Guardian Australia and also the Tasmanian Inquirer.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.